This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Vibhu Sharma, CEO of Innovent Renew Technology. Innovent Technology. Innovent Technology is a digital solution provider that has also made the leap to fuel production through one of their technologies. We are going to be talking about process optimization, big picture thinking, used tires, and pyrolysis. So this show is going to have a little something for everybody. So let's get into it. Vibhu, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to InEvent Technology. Hey, Joe, thank you for uh, having me on the show. Uh, look forward to the discussion. Um, I'm actually a chemical engineer by background and did my undergraduate at Institute of Chemical Technology in India, followed by a master's here at Iowa State. And then um, after a stint with running another company that was acquired uh, by a large engineering company, I decided to start InnoVent Technology in 2020, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic. And InnoVent Technology deals as the name would suggest, technology. Uh, but we deal with two aspects of technology, uh, one of which being digital solutions, uh, where we deploy a solution in the cloud, interestingly using AWS. And the other aspect of our technology is dealing with how we can uh, develop processes for chemicals and oil and gas using innovative technology. So those are the two aspects of our technology business. Yeah, that is exciting to to hear about, especially with the with the utilization of of the cloud and looking at processes. So let's first focus on that cloud component and and the process automation, not necessarily the the fuel side of it yet. So so when we think about this, it, I think uh, I think all of us can see optimization as a whole. Conceptually, it makes sense. You have a system; it makes products or outputs, and to optimize that system would essentially be turning, turning those outputs 
producing those outputs with either the same or less inputs, in increasing the efficiency. How do you start and how do you look at turning optimization into something for this big, large process like a refinery or like one of these industrial clients you have? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we, we look at it like an elephant and we try and, uh, you know, uh, how do you eat an elephant? We try and go at it piece by piece. But the concept we try to follow is what you would see in a sustainability circle, which is reduce, reuse, and recycle. So we put all our energies towards uh, seeing how we can reduce uh, energy consumption, how we can reduce waste uh, in such kind of large industrial operations, and how we can reuse some of that material back uh, or recycle some of that material back. So. The key challenge is how do you adapt technology into making those two things happen, reduce and reuse. So what we try to do, uh, and of course, technology is a very broad concept. So within that, what our expertise as chemical engineers is to use engineering models, uh, which are process simulation models, and we have partnerships with uh, two of the leading companies in that space, Aspen Tech and ChemCAD. Uh, so we deploy their solutions in addition to our own proprietary software, which is the digital twin digital solution platform, uh, which is powered by AWS. So it runs in the cloud. And what we do is we build engineering models of these assets. So first we can understand how they're operating and we use AI, we use simulation and optimization to come up with how should these assets be operating? So where are we now and where could we actually go in terms of optimum operation? And try and reduce that gap on a real-time basis. So we're collecting data, we're running it through simulation models, we're putting some intelligent models on top of it with AI and other techniques and it's making recommendations that, hey, you know, your, your pump is running too hard or your pressure is too high or your temperature is too high. And we can make those adjustments on the fly as we are processing data to keep making improvements. So that essentially is the definition of digital twin because what the digital twin is, it's a replica of your industrial asset with an engineering model. So you, you have a high quality model on a computer uh, that you can then do all kinds of different water analysis, improvements, optimizations, and you can improve that asset and feed that information back to the asset, saying, hey, if you only made this change, you could make a big improvement in your, in your process. So that's the digital aspect of technology. And uh, how we are deploying the cloud in AWS is we have operations in Houston, where we are based. We have operations in India. We have operations in Mexico. And all these collaborative teams can log in and access the information and make intelligent uh, recommendations using that cloud. So it becomes a very powerful way to address that almost on a 24-7 basis. Yeah, that is it. The way you explain it, understanding how something should operate, seeing how it is varying from that, and then doing tests in the cloud and, and doing tests to the digital twin to make the system operate better. It 
it seems so obvious and it seems it you've explained it very well and, and in a simple way. But as you're also talking through it, I was like, this also sounds very difficult to actually implement. I guess the, is it, is it fair to say that this isn't necessarily a, a common practice? And if so, why, why isn't everybody doing this? Yeah. So, you know, I talked about the elephant concept before, where it's a really big thing to try and digest in one shot. Uh, one of the mistakes people make is that they try and solve or eat the whole elephant in one shot, and that always leads to failure. Um, our biggest challenge with implementing these type of digital projects is that uh, companies often lack the data that's needed to solve such a problem. I mean, you, you may have heard of the concept garbage in, garbage out. Uh, I mean, the, the model can only be as smart as the information that's going into it. And what happens uh, often is that if the industrial asset does not have the right kind of field data, instrumentation and collecting that data and processing that data, filtering the, 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 the bad data points out of that data, then you can't really convert that into actionable intelligence. And so one of the biggest problems we find is that either that data is not uh, accurate or the data is not enough or uh, the data is not handled properly. So a lot of time first goes into processing that data, filtering that data, cleaning that data before you can do anything, right? And then what happens is that uh, companies don't realize that this is not a one-time thing where you do uh, a project to do an analysis uh, and you make some recommendations and that's it, then you go away. This is a life cycle, so you're doing it continuously. It has to be on all the time. It's like having your air conditioner thermostat in the house. You don't just use it once, you use it all the time to keep maintaining the right temperature. So you kind of need to invest in it with the right people in your organization and with the right amount of funding that will allow this system to be in place all the time. So those are some of our observations having done maybe 20, 30 such digital solution projects uh, in the past few years. Uh, these are some of the most common challenges that we face uh, in implementing. There are very few that actually are able to take it all the way to a complete implementation, but many end up with pockets of implementation. And those add a lot of value too. Uh, and then there are some that fail because they expect too much out of it and they don't invest enough into it. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see how taking down the elephant of full process automation can be difficult. But going bit by bit while maybe not the best solution or the fully optimized solution taking care of individual components ultimately does add add value and i think that that's a good segue into that second part of in event technology where we've talked about the digital side and and full process optimization but there's always new hardware and new new technology from the actual physical processing side that is being developed. Something you pointed out at the beginning that you you bring in these additional new technologies 
into the whole process. And, and sometimes those are, those are large enough to stand up on their own, which is, which I, I, I'm interested to talk about. So how, how do you go about that? Where is that process when you talk about in event technology, bringing in, bringing in, finding those new hardware technologies and, and I would, I think now would be a good opportunity for you to use yourself as an example and how that led to in event renewables. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. We, uh, as part of our optimization and engineering work over the last 25 or so years, um, uh, I had two partners who are technical experts, one in Mexico, Sergio Trevino and Gautam Pradhan in India. These guys come with 25, 30 years of experience in improving things, doing new things, developing new things, uh, uh, all the way from concept to commissioning. And while we were doing that, helping our clients make improvements in their processes, in several areas we found that there was a much better way of doing it from scratch. And so we started putting a lot of effort into lab work, into pilot plant research, and then ultimately scaling it up uh, using our simulation and engineering expertise uh, into new technologies. And that's kind of been a passion of ours is to find a better way of doing things. And in that process, we came up with uh, technologies uh, uh, such as bioethanol, for example, and then taking bioethanol and making chemical products out of it uh, because that there's a huge demand for that. And there's a lot of... Uh, uh, a demand for ethanol blending into fuels, but there's more places where that ethanol can go. Um, and other chemical derivatives, uh, reducing wastewater from streams, which is again a big problem in the industry. So we started tackling some of these uh, problems in terms of making technology improvements or developing new process technologies altogether as a company. One such technology that we hit upon uh, was pyrolysis. And I can talk more about pyrolysis uh, uh, in a few minutes, but uh, pyrolysis was something we spent a lot of time doing lab work and pilot plant work on. Uh, it's a technology that's been around for a while, but it had not been adapted in particular to waste tires. And the more we dug into it, uh, the more we realized how big a problem it was and how big a potential business that could result in. So that led us to create a spin-off company called Innovent Renewables, which was dedicated to dealing with the waste tire problem, which has become a massive global environmental problem. And so that's how Innovent Renewables was born about four months back. That is really interesting. So to make sure I'm understanding, you basically, when you're doing the process optimization for, for a client under Innovent technology, sometimes there, there are better ways at the fundamental level from scratch to actually do a process. And that's something that you, you add in to help optimize a system right. and i guess from a maybe if it's a one-off for a single client it makes sense to say okay here's here's that solution 
take it, do better, and we hope you success. But here, what you've pointed out with with tires specifically and pyrolysis, it is such a big market that that you said we need we need to scale this up. We need to put this out on the market so that this problem has a solution. It's, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's exciting to think about. And let's talk about it. But just in case somebody doesn't know, what exactly is pyrolysis and and how does it relate to tires? Yeah, no good point. I keep throwing that word around, but but it's not something that's uh, that's that's a common use. But uh, pyrolysis is essentially um, heating up organic materials such as biomass and tires and, uh, and plastics and so on at very high temperatures in the absence of oxygen. Uh, so if you have oxygen in that system, it will combust, it, it will kind of uh, be consumed uh, into, into flames. But in, if you operate that in the absence of oxygen and you heat it up really high, the organic material decomposes into its original content. So if you take plastic and you run it through this, it will break down into uh, the, the oil and the chemicals that were used to make the plastic. Uh, similarly, if you apply that to tires, uh, the tires at very high temperatures, let's think of it as a cooker that has no oxygen in it. Uh, it the tire basically breaks down into oil and chemicals that were used to make that tire in the first place. And so you get back what was used to make the tires, and that's what makes pyrolysis very interesting. Um, it's not new. It's been around for a while. So if, the, if you look at the cement industry, if you look at how printing inks and tires were made today, they use pyrolysis. But it, has, it had not been widely adopted for dealing with waste tires, and that's where our research and our work came in. Okay. Okay. So basically it, it, because tires are a, have that, that, uh, organic component, there is something that it's going to break down into. And I guess the, but you said that pyrolysis is used for making tires originally. If I, if I heard you correctly, why, so if that's right, why is there a difference between new tires and used tires? Yeah, so when you're making new tires, you don't use pyrolysis. But okay. when you want to make carbon black, carbon black is like carbon char. You know, think of coal. And if you crush coal, the powder you get is kind of like what carbon black looks like. And to make car now carbon black is about 20% of any tire, right? All the black that you see and all the fillers that you see, that's carbon black. And it oh. gives it the properties, it gives it the, the consistency and so on. So carbon black is made using a different kind of pyrolysis process where you do flash pyrolysis and you heat it up to very, very high temperatures. And basically it burns off into char and then the char becomes what goes into tires. So my point was that as a technique, pyrolysis has been used in different industries. 
even cement industry, those cement kilns kind of use a pyrolysis type process to get the cement that is then used for construction and everything else. Um, so when you modify the way pyrolysis is done, uh, you can take tires and break them down into different components, oil as well as carbon black, which then goes back into making tires again. So that's what makes it very, very interesting because now we are taking something that's known, but we're completely modifying it for a different application. Yeah, yeah, okay. And now what you're doing, you are taking the carbon black that, that was generated to go into tires and through used tires, you are recreating carbon black, recreating maybe not the best word, but in essence, you're breaking it back down to carbon black. And now you've created this circle and this circular economy for one of the components that's going into tires. That That's that's exciting. That is what what we talk about is the circular economy. That is kind of what one of those big lofty goals that we strive for. No, that's that's absolutely right. So if you if you look at a tire, um, it has hydrocarbon, it has chemicals, it has carbon black, and it has steel wire. You know what you call the radial steel? That's actually steel wire that kind of binds it together. And then now you've taken a tire, you shred it, and you throw it into this pyrolysis chamber reactor. And after it does its, its magic, it breaks it down into four components, four or five components. One is the oil, the hydrocarbon kind of melts off and becomes the in liquid form, which is the oil. And that oil is very close to off-road diesel or, or fuel. Uh, it can be blended into aviation, it can be blended into marine fuel and, and all of that. So uh, that's the biggest component. The next biggest component is the carbon black, which was used to make the tar in the first place. Completely circular, it goes back into where it came from. Um, and then the steel wire comes out intact because steel does not uh, uh, kind of melt at those temperatures. So you get your steel bag that was used to making the tires. You can use it for tires or anything else. And then the gases, there are some gases that come out in addition to the fuel. We recycle those gases back to heat up the reactor. So everything that comes into tire, 95 or 94% of that is reused back either into our reaction or into fuels and carbon black and steel that, that go back into making tires. So that's what got us super excited about using this technology where we could get almost everything back and have a circular uh, economy to sending those things back into making tires. Yeah, that is it. The, the use and reuse of those tires is, is such an obvious value and environmental value and and just really inspirational to hear about as far as as what this does from a metrics standpoint 95 percent of the tires going back on the road in into use in some way what about the carbon footprint is there any type of kind of life cycle analysis to carbon footprint or or greenhouse gas emissions on how this improves something i guess maybe we're talking about the the 
the tire industry or maybe the sustainable aviation fuel opportunity or marine fuels. Have you seen what the impact is from that standpoint, hard numbers? Yeah, so the metrics that have been published extensively uh, are pretty compelling. Uh, uh, the, the published data is that four tires that are recycled uh, reduce carbon emissions by 323 pounds. And uh, the production facility that we are putting together would deal with 1 million passenger tires to start with. And that translates into 80 million pounds of carbon emissions that we would take off uh, by converting them into usable products. So otherwise, these tires, uh, and I should maybe talk a little bit more about that. Uh, right now, why we tackled tires uh, as a major issue is because you have 1 billion tires every year, 1 billion with a B, that go into landfills, right, all over the world. The U.S. alone disposes about 150 to 200 million tires every single year. Wow. Texas, where I'm from, has landfills with over 50 million of tires. So everywhere you look, there are massive stockpiles of waste tires sitting in landfills. And they are an environmental, climate, and public health problem. Okay? Uh, environmental, obviously, because you have these tires that could uh, get uh, catch fire at any time and create a massive... Uh, uh, you know, fire and environmental issue right there. Uh, you have tires that don't decompose for 500 years. So you have tires sitting there in landfills and they start leaching chemicals. They leach chemicals into water, they leach chemicals into soil. And when it gets hot enough, like it does in Texas and Middle East and elsewhere, you start getting toxic gases coming out of those tires, such as methane, that are polluting your neighborhood. So who wants to live in a neighborhood where you have a stockpile of tires that are spewing out gases or leaching chemicals into your soil and your water table, right? Uh, now, this also becomes a breeding ground for rodents, mosquitoes, and all kinds of pests, which then lead to diseases like malaria, West Nile virus, and, and, and other problems. So no one wants to have this problem in their backyard, let alone their state. So it became a big imperative for us to find a way to tackle this problem. So not only are you dealing with environmental, climate, and public health problem, but by taking these tires off the landfill and recycling most of it back into usable products, you are getting millions of pounds of CO2 off, which in itself is a massive uh, achievement. And, and the thing we like the most is that it's an economically viable process. You're taking in tires that are waste. In fact, some companies and organizations are willing to pay us to get rid of the tires. And you're converting them into valuable commodities like carbon black, like diesel fuel that all have a high value in the market. So you can actually make economic sense out of this operation while fixing climate, environmental, public health issues, and getting rid of these tires and reducing carbon emissions. So it kind of checks every box in our book 
in terms of why it makes so much sense to do this. Yeah, absolutely. The those numbers are staggering when you talk about the the system and and the the I guess the the refinery, if you will, that you're setting up, taking in roughly one million tires, but annually there's 1.5 billion tires. That is, it's an order of magnitude larger, a significant order of magnitude larger, and and it, it's just crazy to think about with those with those four tires. So we've talked about the carbon emissions. I'm curious how much how much um, liquids, basically the, the the off-road diesel you talked about, how much of those hydrocarbon liquids come off of those four tires? Yeah, so uh, out of whatever goes into our system, uh, you get about 40% of product as oil. So this is your off-road diesel or your marine fuel blend or what have you. Uh, about 35% of the product goes into carbon black. And then carbon black goes back into making tires. The, uh, the uh, fuel uh, that we produce can be used by generators, any farm equipment. It can be blended into marine fuel and so on and so forth. Um, steel wire is about 10% of, uh, of what we get uh, as a percentage and about eight to 10% are gases uh, okay. that come along with the fuel. And those gases are uh, pretty much used to heat up our big reactor at very high temperatures. So we use our own, uh, ours is a continuous process, which is one of the big uh, differentiators about it is that it makes it super efficient, energy efficient. And so in essence, our entire operation is net energy zero or net zero. And so we don't, consume any external energy. Uh, the Whatever energy we need for our operation comes from the product itself, which we recycle back. Uh, and so uh, in that sense, our carbon intensity is very low. It's as efficient or as optimized the process as we could have. Um, and, and one reason why pyrolysis has not been widely adapted by other companies or organizations is because they've been trying to address this as a batch operation. So when you run a batch at a time, you have to cook the whole thing up at very high temperature, make your product, uh, cool everything down so you're losing all that energy, then you spend all your time cleaning up and removing the product, and then you cook it up again by consuming a lot of energy to heat it back up. So it makes no sense to operate it that way, right? Whereas when you run it continuously, it, it stays at that high temperature all the time, so you're not reheating it all the time. The energy needed to keep it at that temperature is a lot easier. And then you recycle the uh, gases back, you use up the fuels for other things, and it works a lot better. I mean, just like an oil refinery, you don't run an oil refinery as a batch. It's run 24-7 continuously because that's the most efficient way to do it. Yeah. So we designed a technology that would run continuously and give it that efficiency. Um, we're also undergoing a study shortly that would allow us to generate a report with the CI index, that's the carbon intensity index, uh, which will show how efficient our own process is in addition to the benefits of 
taking that much CO2 emissions off by processing tires and converting them to useful products. Um, but I wanted to add, because this show is all about energy transition, uh, you know, one, one comment I had was that uh, we would be initially dealing with 1 million tires. And as you pointed out, you have 1.5 billion tires to deal with. So we would be a drop in the bucket, literally in addressing this problem. Uh, and we will expand uh, as much and as quickly as we possibly can. But even with that, we would be addressing a small fraction of that problem. Yeah. And we will add fuels, carbon black, and other useful products into the industry that the industry can buy and meet their renewable goals and everything. Uh, but that would not replace all the other fuels and uh, solar and wind and, of course, uh, oil, diesel, gasoline that's used in the market. So uh, an energy transition approach where you think all of your fuel needs or energy needs can be met just by processing tires is not realistic. Uh, we can make a dent towards it. And look, even if we expanded 10 times our production facilities, that would be dealing with 10 million tires. Uh, we are dealing with 1% of the tires that are dumped in landfills. So again, not really moving the needle in a huge way, but we would be meet, uh, moving carbon emissions uh, in a huge way, because this would address 800 million pounds uh, of carbon emissions if we expanded to 10 uh, production trains or 10 production sites dealing with 10 million tires. Yeah. How, how do you expand? How could you get to that 10 million? How could we as a society or as an industry get to greater than that, maybe a hundred million tires a year. Yeah, no, great question. And, and we ask that ourselves every day is that how, how can we do more uh, with what we have? Uh, one is an organic way, I mean, pun intended, which is uh, as we start our first production cycle and the cash flow that we get from that, we deploy that back into expanding and we grow that way. That's a slower a controlled way to grow, but it may take us many years to get there, right? Uh, we uh, would encourage working with uh, strategic partners, and we are talking to uh, three major tire companies right now that want to meet their uh, renewable requirements by not only buying carbon black from us uh, to use to make tires, but also buying the fuel from us uh, that they could use in their processes because it's renewable fuel. Uh, now, now, these strategic partners could potentially invest uh, into helping us expand faster. Uh, we are also uh, dealing with local governments and counties that have approached us because they all have a big tire problem and they are looking at either not only supplying the tires to us, but providing state funding or grants. Uh, nonprofits are suggesting the same, that they could potentially provide grants to help fund additional such sites. Um, so our first site, by the way, uh, we are setting up in Monterrey, Mexico. And uh, we chose that site for multiple reasons. It's a big busing city with great infrastructure, two hours from Texas. Uh, so we have easy access to that. 
but they also have a stockpile of over 15 million waste tiles within five miles of where our facility is. Now, every time you walk into Discount Tire or Walmart or Costco to change your tires, you pay a tire disposal fee, right? $2, $3, whatever. Guess where that fee is used? That fee is used to dispose the tires off to Mexico or some other landfill. And so we went to Monterey, Mexico, where the tires were. So we went to the source and we can access millions of tires without going beyond five miles of where we are, right? Uh, and so, so that's what made sense. So, but uh, counties in Texas and Florida and California all have stockpiles of millions of tires in the same way and they want to get rid of it. So we could potentially have sites not just in Monterey, Mexico, but in Texas and Florida and other parts of the U.S. and globally. We are in discussions with a couple of companies in India, in Middle East, where they all are dealing with this kind of a problem. Uh, by the way, the largest stockpile or graveyard of dead tires or waste tires is in Kuwait City. And that one landfill alone has 6 million waste tires in a landfill. Wow. And so some of these countries are dealing with enormous problems with no real solutions available. We have a real viable solution. And the way we decided to prove it is to set it up ourselves. Uh, put our money where our mouth is. So we've invested in this facility in, uh, in Mexico to set up our own production facility. And once that ramps up, we would be ready to expand globally as quickly as we possibly can with support from nonprofits, with support from strategic partners, with support from local, state, and federal governments to help us get there. So that's, and all of the, all of the above strategy in order for us to really tackle this problem of one billion waste tires a year. Yeah. How do you know when a technology is big enough to spin it off? With this example, I think it there's this obvious one billion tires. We need to figure that out. But when you think about any one of those technologies that you've worked on and, and developed with InEvent technology, is there is there a metric or is there a, a process that you decide when you want to hold on to a technology and, and develop it yourself or when you want to let it go and and live on its own? Yeah, that, that's a great, great question. And as an entrepreneur, you kind of uh, always uh, have to go back and forth on that decision. And, you know, anything an entrepreneur does, they think it can, uh, it has no limit and sky is the limit. But, you know, some of the technologies and things we develop, uh, we may license or sell it once, twice, three times. And, and you know, the scalability of it gets limited because some of these are specialized technologies. So spinning each idea that we get into a new business doesn't make sense. But when we hit upon the tire problem, the more we looked at it, we realized how huge a problem it was. And so the motivation was multiple ways. One is that the scalability of this problem was enormous. Uh, uh, that literally sky was the limit looking at it as a global problem. The second issue was that for us to actually implement a solution ha and have it at a commercial scale, it needed funding. And we didn't want that funding to get diluted in some of the other things that we're doing. 
So it made most sense for us to bring it out as its own entity, give it the breathing room and the nurturing that it needed to grow on its own. Yeah. And it allowed us to bring in investors to invest into that business uh, so that we could set up our own production site. So this is uh, a business where we have sort of a friends and family fundraise that we did. And what we thought would be the most challenging step turned out to be the easiest because uh, we were able to raise funds and be oversubscribed in less than three weeks. Wow. Uh, and, and we're talking several million dollars, so it's not, uh, it's not a small amount. And what we realized is that everyone was aware of this problem and believed that something should be done about it, right? So when you go to someone and say, hey, you know, you have Waystar, everyone owns a car, almost everyone. And yeah, I know, I pay for getting rid of those tires. I don't know what happens to those tires, right? So we got our investors so excited that anytime they're driving on the highway, if they see a waste tire that's out there, they want to stop and grab that tire and deal with it, right? <laughs> so it's a problem that affects our daily life. It's a problem that we see all the time because you have tires and cars all over. And so people got it right away and wanted to be yeah. part of it. Yeah. So that allowed us to set it up as, as a separate entity, get the investment it needed, and go to production as quickly as possible. Okay. That makes sense. Now, I've got two questions. I think they'll be fast questions. The first one, what is there a an age limit on the tire that you can send through this? If I've got something from, from 100 years ago, can you still process that tire? Uh, yes. So there's no age limit because, ironically, uh, tires on their own may not decompose for 500 plus years. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that, that tire may be more worn out or maybe squished or, or, or whatever, but essentially the components in that tire would still be largely intact so we could process it. Okay. But you make a very interesting point because there's some variation in the tires depending on where those tires were born and how they were made. But when you convert them into fuel, it becomes one mixed fuel, so you can't really tell the difference. But I'll give you one interesting point. Tires that were born and made in Mexico, for example, have a much higher percentage of natural rubber compared to tires that were made in the United States. And it so happened because Maybe 40, 50 years back, there was enough plantation of natural rubber that was used to make tires. And as industrial development happened, as cars became big and everyone had a car, you were selling, I think, 90 million cars, 100 million cars a year are sold globally. Um, you couldn't support making those tires using natural rubber. So that's when the chemical industry developed the synthetic rubber process called SBR, styrene butadiene rubber, which is a synthetic chemical made from hydrocarbons. So more and more tires now had very little natural rubber and mostly synthetic rubber. So you see that when you do the lab analysis of these products, and it doesn't really affect the big picture, but it's interesting depending on where you source the tire, some of the components can vary, but largely it's the same kind of mix. Hmm. Okay. Now, 
everything so far has been very exciting, very, very, um, very optimistic. And I just want to make sure we're not looking at everything with rose colored glasses. So I do, I do want to ask the question, are there any negatives to this process and to, to the, the tire pyrolysis? So, um, our, our belief is, you know, anything that you do badly could, could be a, a problem or could be a negative, right? So we are putting a lot of effort into designing this production side as efficiently as possible, as safely as possible, as optimally as possible, so you could run an efficient operation. But there is... Uh, unfortunately, uh, there are certain operators uh, in, in different parts of the world uh, where their concept of dealing with tires is take a shock tire, break it down into pieces, put it in a big boiling pot, and hopefully you can collect uh, fuels out of it uh, and sell those fuels in some way and recover the steel wire out of it. Um, and that's what you see on some of the YouTube videos of people operating. So the stigma is that, oh, my God, is that what you're going to do to the tiles, right? And if so, you're actually spewing more toxic emissions into the air. And that is a big negative, right? So one yeah. of the fears is that people think that's what you're doing, whereas what we're running is a very uh, optimized, efficient chemical operation that's safe, that's continues that has all the uh, things that you would find in a modern chemical plant and where we are not spewing stuff into the air and you're running it, uh, you're collecting any waste that may come out, you're converting it into harmless. Uh, we are also recycling our water. So 80% of our water would be recovered and reused back. So we are, we, are, we are being as conscientious about this as we possibly can. Uh, so, but, but we are cognizant of the fact that you know, um, anything that could do, go wrong in the process could be deemed as a negative. Uh, and we are working towards ensuring that does not happen. I mean, the other negative is if we don't produce quality products, then we would not get the market price for it. And that makes it less economically viable. I don't see that as a negative at this stage because we expect it to be uh, a very profitable operation. So, uh, uh, but the public concept seems to be, hey, I'm just putting stuff in a pot and it's boiling off, doing yeah. all these emissions. So that's a negative connotation. When you apply tire burning, right? That's what people yeah. think of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's a really great point that ultimately the public perception is one of those things that we are constantly battling or maybe bat battling is not, not the right word. Public perception is one of those things that we we want to always engage in, and we want to be giving the the truth and the correct facts that people can use to understand processes. and And this is a this is a great example where the public perception could ultimately be be the the largest uh, roadblock to further development. And so it's it's great to have you on here talking through what it is, what it actually does, and and all of the the significant environmental benefits that come from from the your system that you've developed. 
Yeah. Now here I, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. That first yeah. question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh, uh, so one that I really like is a book called uh, Sapiens. It's I think by Yuval Harari, and uh, it talks about how uh, the human species evolved tens of thousands of years back, how they migrated, uh, how language is developed, uh, how different countries and colonies, uh, communities developed, uh, and so on and so forth. So I find that fascinating uh, when, and particularly so when we deal with problems like tires, you know, different countries look at it and address it differently. Uh, and it really helps to understand how different cultures uh, think and work towards this. And so that book resonated a lot uh, with me to help understand humans a little bit more. Uh, that's one of my favorite books. Yeah, that sounds like a great one. I will have to add that one to the list. Now, the next question, how do we get to net zero? Oh, so, you know, it's a, uh, that's another big elephant. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's, it, it's not, you'll need to have all of the above type of solution. Uh, that's why for us, we're really passionate about tire pyrolysis because for us, Failure is not an option. We have to figure it out uh, because of the massive environmental public health problem. And this is not what we want to leave to our kids. I mean, uh, my kids are a big inspiration to me to make this happen because we have to figure this out. We cannot leave a dumpier planet, uh, a, a smoggier planet for our kids than, than what we got. So, um, you know, fossil fuels are going to be around for a while. Uh, they could transition as part of energy transition, but it's not going to be a light switch that just uh, turns off. Uh, so, so, so we need to find a, a right mix uh, with the right kind of policies. Uh, government policies make a big difference in how uh, countries implement such kind of solutions, whether it's solar incentives or wind or renewable energy incentives or grants or IRA funding, for example, inflation reduction and, and things like that. A lot of these things need to be done. And uh, companies that are coming up with innovative technologies to reduce emissions should be supported uh, by, by companies, by nonprofits, by governments, and so on and so forth. And a lot of this will have to be addressed collectively in order to have net zero. Uh, I'm encouraged by looking at tech companies and other companies that have taken it upon themselves to be net zero by 2030. Um, I, I get a little uh, uh, concerned when companies announce a, a net zero policy for 2070. That's really far off. We need to be addressing this more urgently. So companies should be and organizations should be looking at a 2030, 2035 net zero policy. And as more companies move towards that, I think we can get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point with the things like 2070 goals. It is, it, it, I get concerned with those as well because it feels, it feels kind of like greenwashing. It feels like you're, you're making a statement because your shareholders want you to. But in that time frame, there's so much that can be done that ultimately you're, who knows what you're actually going to do? Whereas 2030, that's only seven years away. In fact, well, it's really six years away. So yeah, it's the analogy I use is you're kicking the tire down the road, right? So <laughs> yeah. 
good. I'm friends with our business. And, you know, one politician was asked, hey, why did you announce 2070? And his point was, yeah, I'm going to be dead by then. So who cares? Right. And and that's the exactly. message that, that it sends. And, and it needs to be dealt as, as a more urgent situation, uh, urgent problem. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to make a, a statement, then make one that you can actually actually act on and and prove your your commitment. Right. Exactly. So the last question is now you actually get to ask me a question. Oh, good. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I, I see that you have an oil and gas background uh, as well. And so what got you into energy transition uh, and, and to do this podcast, what was your motivation to focus on, on a topic like this, which is so relevant to, to, to us today? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And it, so my background is all subsurface geology. I, my, my day job, what I spend most of my time doing is I'm a, the geothermal lead for a subsurface consulting company called Tavera. And so my background has really been focused on on thermal energy resource characterization and and so i've always had the slant towards geothermal energy Mm -hmm. and as part of that i have also done basin modeling for oil and gas companies and traditional oil and gas resource characterization but it it's always been focused on that larger question of we need more energy so that we can live in a modern society and live in an abundant society. And we need more, more power in a reliable, resilient way. And so how do we actually bring those kind of things to the forefront? How do we bring those things to places like, like sub-Saharan Africa that doesn't have any power right now? Mm. And so that's how I kind of got excited about the podcast of bringing all of the solutions and getting everybody excited about all of them because what works here in Dallas, Texas, when it is raining outside right now versus Houston, Texas, where where you're licking your wounds from the Astros losing last night to to the Texas Rangers. You have versus, to <laughs> I, I had to bring it in. And and then jumping over to Africa, where it it could be, it's a completely different environment. So each place is unique and is going to need different solutions. So I think we we need to have everybody at the table talking about it, and and that's that's kind of how I got excited about it. How I've seen the energy transition from a lens of. Well, I do subsurface. I see the value for oil and gas. I see the the value for geothermal. I see the value for carbon storage. And the answers all come back to the fundamental principles of geology and geophysics. And we can solve those challenges together. It's just a matter of, of getting everybody to talk and converse and and have a common goal to strive for. That's that's kind of what I try to do with the podcast and and 
frankly, whenever I'm talking to anybody, I, I do try and get to that point of, of we need more energy. It would be nice to make it in the cleanest, best way possible. How do we get there? Now that's fascinating. And it's a great service you're doing by having this podcast and people listening in and learning new things. So I congratulate you for, for that effort. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Um, well, you mentioned Africa, you mentioned all these countries, all these countries have tires and we need to work together to deal with them so we can have more abundant, clean energy and sources available for everyone. So thank you for having me on this podcast and, and stay in touch. Yes, Vibhu, thank you again for joining joining me today. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way to get you some from us. Go to my show notes, find that one question survey link, fill it out. And when you do that, we'll send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.